We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Vanella Hansen, who's an expert on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. She has a Bachelor of Social Science Counselling from ACU University, Melbourne, Australia, and brings her own personal experience of trauma through medical misadventure to her work in this area. A mistake with the anaesthetic for an operation on her liver meant she felt everything they did, and not surprisingly, she was terrified and in excruciating pain. Fenella works with survivors of child sexual abuse in conjunction with the Royal Commission in Australia. She's also trained to counsel people approaching the end of their life and their families. Fenella, welcome to The Meaningful Life. Now, when people are about to launch themselves into the outside world, you had a nasty shock at 17. Can you tell us what that nasty shock was? Yeah, so at 17, I was in my final year of high school and, you know, preparing to go to university. And about halfway through that year, my mum and my dad came home one night and pulled my sister and I aside and explained that my mother had bowel cancer. And yeah, it really turned my world upside down. At 17, you don't sort of really consider that your parents are going to die at any time soon. My mum was 44 at the time, so she was very young. And, you know, we were sort of thrown into this world of cancer and treatment and, and all those things. So, and having to do my final year of high school. So it was quite traumatic. And I, I don't think I realised quite how traumatic until many years later. And you decided actually not to go to university at that point. It had that impact on you. That's right. I felt by the time I finished school and, you know, with dealing with everything that I felt burnt out. I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. And so I just decided to go into the workforce. That was around sort of 1993. So the IT business was booming at that point and taught myself software testing. And that just took off. And once you sort of get into the workforce and you start earning money, it's very hard to go back and study. Uh, Was that life very meaningful working in IT for you? No, I didn't like it at all. I found that the people that worked around me were very different to me. I didn't really connect with them. There weren't many people I found that I wanted to spend time with. You know, while I could do the work and earn the money, it really wasn't what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. Now, there's nothing that makes you stop and think what you want to do with the rest of your life than sitting at your parents' or a parent's deathbed. That happened for you when you were relatively young, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. So mum went five years and was cleared of having the cancer. So 10 years after her initial diagnosis. She was 54 and she pulled me aside and she said, oh, you know, I've been having some symptoms. I need to go and have some tests. Will you accompany on those? We were very close mother and daughter relationship, which was really nice. So I accompanied her. She had a colonoscopy and exploration 
And she said to me, you know, please don't tell anyone. I don't want anyone to worry. So we sort of kept it a secret. I think it was between Christmas and New Year. They said to her, yes, we found some cancerous cells in your bowel. They wanted to do further tests. So sort of in the January of that year, they did some more scans and they found cancer on her liver. But liver cancer is generally not a primary cancer. So they sort of performed more tests and discovered that she actually had pancreatic cancer. Now, I don't know if you know much about pancreatic cancer, but the survival rates are very, very small. And it moves very quickly as well. And it moves very quickly. So we were thrown into this world again of even more medical tests and hospital visits. And she became really unwell really quickly. And I am very much like her. We're very pragmatic realists. And my sister and my dad are more, oh, how would you explain it? They're a bit dreamy, bit, you know, head in the sand. Head in the clouds. <laughs> head in the clouds. They're born on the same day, so that Ooh. might explain some things. I was mum's main support and I took her to a lot of medical tests. Was she frightened? Yes. She didn't show it initially, but I think the speed that things moved and the prognosis, she began to become quite scared. You know, some of the symptoms that she was having were very traumatic on her and everyone. So she was quite frightened by what was happening. And what's it like coping with your mother's fear as a daughter? Look, at the time, I think because it all happened so quickly, I didn't have time to stop and reflect other than the fact that, you know, heck, my mum's really sick and talking realistically about what was going on. I sort of had a fair understanding that she probably wouldn't survive this. Yes, my partner died when I was older than you, 37, and you could just get caught up in the emergency. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only afterwards when you sort of walk away from the hospital, and my gosh, I'm actually feeling it again, is just how much comes down on top of you at that point. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, after she died and she had quite a traumatic death as well, you know, we thankfully made it there the day that she died. And so we were at her bedside when she passed away. But I sort of went into the mode more of looking after other people, looking after my dad, looking after my sister, looking after my elderly nana who really wasn't coping. Mm -hmm. So I grieved, but I don't think I actually really processed what was going on and that came out later definitely because you got into severe depression didn't you yeah so it's all a bit fuzzy but I developed quite severe depression and anxiety for me that looked like not being able to get out of bed not being functional you know everything just really freaking me out like I would have regular panic attacks my partner at the time we'd organized to go to events and things and I would sabotage because I just couldn't deal with leaving the house I couldn't deal with I couldn't deal with life basically and it was all very overwhelming and you know my dad wasn't coping my sister wasn't coping so you know I was sort of trying to hold them together at the same time and it was a very overwhelming experience for me and did counselling help for you? Um, I was assigned a grief counsellor and he was a really lovely guy, but I think it was too early in the piece. Like he would have appeared on the scene within a couple of weeks. And I think at that point, you've just gotten through the funeral and 
you haven't even wrapped your head around how your life has changed. And so I, I think I, I connected with him a couple of times, but didn't really make that much use of it. But I, it, it actually triggered something in me that I thought, okay, this is an interesting field. You know, maybe this is something that I could do in the future at some point. Wow. So there was some sort of deeper wisdom inside that sort of said, hmm, this is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's fascinating because I think lots of people don't actually listen to those voices. No. <laughs> did you listen to it? I did, but not at the time. I think things were still too raw and I was too unwell to really make sense of it. But it, it was there. It was, it was like a little ember sitting inside of me that had been ignited. And I decided maybe three years after my mum died, that I really wanted to move to the UK. You know, I wanted to start living life, I guess, because my life had kind of been on hold for quite a while. So it was a very positive experience moving country for you. It was. It, it's really hard to explain how much of that baggage that I had on board around being the person whose mother had died you know, how everywhere that I went reminded me of her and being around my family was difficult, you know, because people look at you in a certain way and there's you know, there's always that pity and I just needed to get away. I needed something different. And, you know, I was still really suffering with poor mental health and my anxiety wasn't great, but I thought, I'm going to do this. Because I was fascinated when I read that moving country actually helped for you, because although it was 25 years after my partner died, I was still grieving a huge amount. And I moved to Germany, where he was actually from originally. And bizarrely enough, sort of almost the first day in Germany, I could sort of feel a shadow that I didn't know was there lifting, if that doesn't sound too strange. So I sort of really related to that idea that actually that distance really helped you to be yourself rather than the daughter of a mother who died of cancer. Yeah, and I think it's also that I could cultivate friendships with people who were my people. You know, we grow up with friends from high school who, when we get to adulthood, we don't necessarily relate to all that much. Often those friendships, I think, can be out of a sense of obligation. And I really found my tribe. I was hanging out with all these amazing people that, you know, they were fun and they didn't look at me like the girl who'd lost her mum. Do you come from a small town in Australia? I grew up in the bush. So yes, that was a small town. When my mother died, I was in a, a bigger town, but she was a very popular person. She's, you know, very lovely and calm and, and had lots and lots of friends and sort of supporters. So I felt her influence in so many places. And sometimes that can really be difficult. And so moving to London, I think I forced myself to get on public transport, to do things that I'd never done before. I worked in a backpackers and made friends with so many different people from all around the world and, and it was an amazing experience. And one of those girls that worked there was looking at applying for uni and so she had her book there and we were working together. So just out of interest, I started having a look and out popped this counselling course and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I wonder if I can do this. And, you know, because I am a British citizen as well, I thought I can apply for this. And you had to attend an interview. 
which I did, and I got accepted and started my journey. And what happened to that sort of little flame inside? Did it recognise where it was? Yeah, absolutely. Everything just started to really feel right and I felt like I was coming home. Do you think that these just random events and somehow the right random events fitted together or did you think in a sense that you were destined to come across the water and do something entirely different? Maybe a bit of both. You know, I believe in sort of a bit of serendipity and I believe that the energy that you put out can be the energy that you get back and and certainly my energy had changed and I believe that these opportunities presented themselves because I was ready. The energy you put out comes back to you. So what kind of energy were you giving out at this point? I think I was giving out an energy of that I was ready to take on new challenges. I was ready to change my life, but also that I was ready to heal because what I didn't know at the time that I now know is that by studying counselling, I was able to really shine a light on my own experiences and do a lot of significant healing work through studying. Because what they call people like you and I are wounded healers. Yes, absolutely. It's a really difficult equation because if you're too wounded, you're going to be with your wound rather than your client's wound. And if you're somebody just sailed through the world, however nice you are, you're going to be terribly sympathetic, but you're not really going to be in their world. Yeah. And it's quite difficult to find the balance between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that I was definitely very aware of and really wanted to make sure that I put put into practice what I'd learned, especially around my depression and anxiety. And so, you know, I learned a lot of strategies about how to deal with anxiety and and they worked. So give me an example of of something that worked for you dealing with the anxiety. So something for me and a strategy that I still use today that is free and we have it with us at all times is breathing. Breathing exercises for me were key. So let's have a breathing exercise that we can do together now. Yep. So probably one of my favourite things is to sit up in your chair and put your shoulders back. Right, shoulders back, yep. Often when we're feeling depressed or anxious, we tend to hunch over and quite often people will hold that tension in their shoulders. So shoulders back, elongate your neck a bit. Put your hand sort of just above your belly button. Right, yep. That's sort of where your diaphragm is. And so what you need to do then is take a deep breath in and then you need to feel it underneath your hands. So it's called belly breathing. So you're breathing right in down into your belly. So you breathe in for the count of four. And then you hold that for four seconds. And breathe out to the count of four. And you can actually hold it at the end for the count of four as well. Yep, I do that. I always hold for a count of four. Yeah, so funnily enough, when I learnt this strategy, no one ever taught me theory behind why this works. And I I actually only learnt this when I started to study to become a trauma therapist. We have what's called the vagus nerve that runs right through our body and vagus means wandering and the nerve runs right through it. It's like a tree running through our body and it wraps itself around all your organs and by doing that belly breathing, you're effectively squashing all the organs in your abdomen And by squashing those organs and the vagus nerve that runs around those, that activates things and slows things right down. So you only have to do those breaths for 
60 seconds for them to start having an effect. Well, the way I do it is I say to myself, in two, three, four, hold two, three, four, out two, three, four, hold two, three, four. And it is incredibly calming. Yeah. When you say with the hand, are you using the hand just to follow or using the hand to accentuate? Using the hand more to ensure that you are breathing deep enough because often when we're feeling anxious, we will breathe only into our chest and that's not deep enough. You really need to get that breath right down into your belly so that it is squashing that vagus nerve and activating everything. So, you know, it's it's a feeling thing and it's also recognition that what you're doing is actually working. Now, I've covered quite a bit of the background because my suspicion, and you're going to tell me whether I'm right or wrong, (laughs) is background when we're dealing with trauma is a sort of the base that the trauma is sitting on. And so you need to be aware of that as well as the for want of a better word, the defining trauma, which in your case was diagnosed as medical misadventure. So we're going to forward on how long after you finished your training that this all happened? I'd been unwell for a little while. I'd had a bunch of unexplained symptoms that no one could give me answers for. I'd also been diagnosed with endometriosis and I'd had surgery in 2009 to have that removed. But that wasn't what was causing my problems. I was vomiting a lot after food. I had a constant pain sort of in the bottom of the right side of my ribs and it would radiate up into my shoulder. I just felt awful a lot of the time. You know, I kept having blood tests and my doctors would say to me, oh, your liver function's not right. You shouldn't be drinking so much alcohol. And I'd say to them, I can't drink alcohol. It makes me really sick. I felt like no one was actually listening to what I was saying. And eventually I got onto a doctor who said, oh, maybe you've got gallstones. We'll send you off for a scan. So this was in 2010. And I went into the, it was an ultrasound and I went in and I remember lying there and I looked at the lady's face and I could see that something wasn't right. And and I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then she called someone else in to have a look and I just thought, oh dear, this is not good. And it turned out that I had a at that stage an eight centimeter tumor on my liver. I think I only had a couple of days because they did more tests in which I didn't know whether it was cancerous or not. But, you know, in that time I'd mapped out what I was going to (laughs) do if it was cancerous. (laughs) Thankfully it was benign, but, you know, it had to be removed because it was causing me a lot of trouble. I had the initial surgery to remove the tumour and it had grown to 10 centimetres by that stage. So, you know, sort of the size of a, a softball, I suppose. So I had half of my liver removed. I lost the whole right lobe of my liver and that included my gallbladder. So what what happens is when they cut your liver, it leaks out a bile material and eventually that's supposed to stop. But what had happened with me was it was sort of slowly building up in that cavity in my body and it was pressing on my lung and it was pressing on my diaphragm and it was causing me a lot of pain. It was too dangerous to try and drain it because they'd have to go through my lungs and that would introduce infection. And they sort of just said, oh, it'll get better. You'll be fine. Like they sent me home and 
I sort of got on with my life. It didn't resolve itself. The liver actually will regenerate itself to three quarters of the size, you know, if you cut a bit off. Mm -hmm. So my liver regenerated, but it regenerated around a bile cyst. And so I had a bile cyst growing in my liver that was just continually filling with this fluid. After nearly a year, it started to cause problems. And so I went back and I said, there's something wrong. And I had a bunch of tests and they confirmed that there was something there, but they said it's not a tumour. You know, it doesn't look like a tumour. We don't know what it is. It could be a cyst. It could be an abscess. And they decided they would put a drain in to drain whatever it was out. You know, I had a bag attached to me and it was just horrible. Yeah. So I was carting this bag around that I could drag along the floor behind me and it was filling up with this fluid. And at some point I started to really become unwell. I was getting fevers and aches and pains and sort of like that feeling that you get when you have the flu. So I kept presenting back to emergency and they didn't know what was wrong and they took the drain out and, you know, they were putting me on antibiotics, but they still didn't know what was going on. And eventually they discovered that they'd introduced not one, but three different hospital-based infections into my liver. Oh, thank you. Yes. So I had golden staph, enterobacter, and I had E. coli. And they're all pretty severe on their own, but having three of them wasn't much fun. So I'd go into hospital, I'd be on a drip with antibiotics, I'd improve a little bit, they'd send me home. Two days later, I'd be back in hospital again, you know, with fevers spiking through the roof, heartbeat of 150 beats a minute. And this went on. And each time I'd go back into hospital for a longer period of time, and eventually they decided that they wanted to start putting stents in my liver so I'd have to have gastroscopies so down my throat to have those placed and then that wasn't working so they decided that they wanted to place the original drain back in again and because I was full of infection they had to do it in a fully sterile environment it was, it was a very different operating theatre to ones that I'd been in in the past and were you supposed to have full anaesthetic or it was supposed to be um, just the anaesthetic in the part of the body which was going to be operated on? Yeah, it was just a local, so it was just going to be in that area and I was awake for the experience. I've got notoriously bad veins. They placed a cannula sort of in the upper part of my arm and, you know, I was lying on the on the operating table and they injected me with the anaesthetic and then they started to put this sort of guide wire into my abdomen to go into my liver. And I said to them, I can feel that. And they said, oh, give us some more anaesthetic. She shouldn't be able to feel that. So they gave me some more anaesthetic and they waited a couple of minutes and then they tried again. And I said to them, I can still feel that. And I was starting to become really distressed at this point because it was painful. It was really painful. You know, I could see them all sort of going, oh, what's going on here? And they said, you know, give us some more, but this is probably the most that you can have because they've given me quite a bit by this point. And at that point, you know, it all just went wrong and they were holding me down and they were putting this thing in me and, and I was they were feeling physically it all. holding you down. Yeah, because I was struggling and they were trying to put this guide wire into me in a tube and 
at no point did they stop and sort of say, okay, well, why is she feeling this? What's going wrong here? They just proceeded. Anyway. I want to use a word that begins with F at this precise moment, but I won't. Fair. (laughs) You know, finally that was done and I was wheeled out into recovery and, you know, and I was sobbing and the nurses were doing their best to try and console me. And I said to them, my arm feels really weird. You know, it felt tight and it felt wrong. And so a nurse came over and she sort of rolled up the gown that I had on. And I can only explain it that it looked like a reverse Popeye. It looked like I had a great big muscle under my arm. (laughs) And I watched the colour drain out of her face and she just looked at me and she said, oh, my God, that's the anaesthetic. None of that went into your system. So basically it had gone in subcutaneously, not into my veins at all. So it was just sitting in my arm, making my arm numb. (laughs) So effectively they operated on your liver in sort of conditions from the previous century. Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised you weren't punching them, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Look, I think at that point I was so unwell that I didn't have the strength to do much. You know, it only got worse from there, if that's at all possible. You know, the drain didn't work, so they placed, I think, another two or three stents into my liver and then I developed pancreatitis. You know, I was so unwell that they didn't know if I would survive because my body was full of infection and my organs were really struggling. Eventually, I begged them and I said, you need to do something because they'd sort of said to me, oh, we can open you up and clean out the infection, but we don't want to do that because that's big surgery again. And and I was just like, you need to do that. You're ruining my life. I I can't keep being subjected to this. It's, It's too much. After I'd been in there for like five months, they opened me up along my original scar They cleaned out the infection, which apparently was awful. They placed a couple of sort of drain points out of the bottom of my stomach and they sort of closed me back up and they had a flushing system going on. And within two weeks, I was almost back to normal, apart from the the fact that, you know, I'd had all this horrible stuff happen and I'd had major surgery again, but I felt so much better. So I'm imagining at that point when you've felt so much better, you thought, well, that's all behind me and now I've got to get on with the rest of my life. Am I sort of hearing that correctly? That's it. I'd experienced so much trauma and, you know, at that point I was pretty much broke because I'd been in hospital for so long. I just wanted to get back to work and and forget about it. And I, I did have people sort of say to me, you know, you could take them to court over this and I was just like you know what I, I can't I don't have the mental capacity to do that I'm exhausted from this experience I just want to get on with my life I need to put it behind me I need to move on and just write it off as a really terrible experience and is it possible to do that no <laughs> definitely not I thought that was going to be the answer <laughs> but but the problem is we so much want it to be the truth yeah Oh, we yeah. put a huge amount of energy into trying to make it the truth. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a very human thing, I think. I was never offered rehabilitation. I was never offered counselling. So I went back to my job, working in mental health, dealing with other people's problems, and that's where my energy was focused. I didn't really give myself the attention that I needed 
And, you know, as they say, if you don't deal with the things that need dealing with, they will come out at some point. And how did they come out? So I met my current partner and fell in love and everything was wonderful and we decided to get married. Congratulations. Thank you. And then my body went, oh, you're in a safe space now. You can start processing your trauma. (laughs) Ooh, yummy. (laughs) But I didn't really understand what was happening. I started feeling depressed, uncomfortable in my own body, I didn't like to be touched anymore. Like I I was very confident. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I was doing. All of a sudden it was like I'd lost my mojo. I didn't know what I wanted anymore. Everything just sort of freaked me out a lot. And it's really interesting. You had to be in a good enough place for that Mm. to actually come out. Yeah, and that's quite often, you know, a really common thing with trauma and people is that your body will hold on to that until it feels like you're in a safe enough space to actually deal. That's definitely what happened to me. You know, I was working in mental health, so I'd sort of done a little bit of trauma training at that point, but a lot of the stuff that you read and get taught about PTSD is that you have flashbacks and that you... Have dreams and memories. Memories and that you're hyper-aroused and that noises will make you jumpy, and that wasn't me. You know, as it turns out, that's because I spent so much time in hospital on so much morphine that none of it was stored in my brain. And one of my favourite trauma therapists is a guy called Bessel van der Kolk, and he's written a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yep, it's one of the books that I recommend as well. It is absolutely brilliant. And it basically explains that trauma is stored at a cellular level and that it's not necessarily going to be memories and flashbacks, but that you can have physical manifestations of those traumas. And that's exactly what I was having. We're going to put the details of that book. And there's another book that you recommend, isn't there? Ah, Yes, Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine, which is another amazing book. Both of those will be in the show notes for this. So this is a really important piece of information we have here, that PTSD is Even if you can't remember in your head this information, your body is actually storing this information nevertheless. So how can you recognise if your body is storing trauma? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's, I can sort of talk from my own experience is that I developed fibromyalgia and often people with a trauma history will develop autoimmune disorders. So, you know, things like multiple sclerosis, diabetes, fibromyalgia, those sorts of things. And that's because your body has stored it at a cellular level. You know, even things like brushing my teeth were problematic because I'd had four or five different gastroscopes down my throat. And so now putting things in my mouth just would trigger me. And are the behaviours that come from this trauma that you're sort of inadvertently managing the trauma through particular activities, but you wouldn't actually associate the end product with the unresolved trauma. I'm thinking about how you react to other people that you might not settle somewhere work-wise. I'm, I'm not quite certain. But. Well, it, it, it does depend on, on the person. So for me personally, it was not liking to be touched. You know, I used to be a very tactile person. I, I liked to be hugged. I've had tattoos and I could deal with pain and then all of a sudden 
you know, I just couldn't deal with pain. Pain would just set me off. You know, I'd have these sort of really big, bad reactions to pain and, you know, even just people touching me, I'd tense up and, and I'd be like, oh, don't touch me. You know, this is terrible. So what was it like getting a diagnosis for you? It was amazing because all of a sudden I understood what was going on for me. But it was also because <laughs> by the time I got a diagnosis, I'd been working in trauma therapy for three years. So I kind of felt a little bit dumb because I hadn't <laughs> understood what was going on for myself. But my therapist, who is amazing, said to me, humans have this disconnect between the brain and the body and that's exactly what's happened to you and especially because my body had become such an unsafe place for me. I'd really disconnected my brain from my body. You disconnected your brain from your body? Yeah, so I didn't have to feel what was going on. Yeah, it was just an unsafe space for me. So logically I could tell you all of these things about trauma and mental health and PTSD, but I couldn't apply it to myself because I disconnected my own body, basically. And was the earlier trauma in there, like the trauma of losing your mother and the trauma of her diagnosis when you were quite young as well? Yeah, that definitely played a part because I've always looked after other people more than I've looked after me. So that's replicated through my work. You know, I was putting all my energies into looking after my clients and, you know, just coming home at the end of the day and not paying attention to what was going on for myself. So what helped you? breathing exercises, funnily enough. <laughs> We've gone back to that and it needs to be a daily practice. It needs to be something that you do so that it becomes second nature for your body so that when you do experience something that's triggering, you know, because if you become triggered, your frontal lobe shuts down and you, you can't think, oh, I need to breathe or I need to do this. So it's a daily practice. So what, what is your daily practice then? Well, when I'm being good, <laughs> because I'm human, <laughs> breathing exercises. I do yoga at home. I can't do yoga in a studio because I find that certain poses will release a trauma energy for me. And I can't tell you what that will be until it happens. Happens, I will be in a certain pose and then all of a sudden I'll just be overcome by emotion and tears and I'll have to sit down and let that out and understand that that's my trauma coming up for me and that's my body letting go of something. Grounding exercises, going out bare feet, putting them on the soil outside and looking up mm -hmm. at the sky and feeling the sun or the wind or whatever on my skin. They're sort of my main toolkit, really. You've somehow got to reconnect the link between your brain and your body. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I have had to re-establish re that connection and make peace with my body and try and make it a safe space for me to inhabit, which is hard because I still suffer from endometriosis. So, you know, I still suffer from a lot of pain. You know, I suffer from migraines from time to time. I have chronic pain issues and pain is triggering for me, so it's, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> so what have you learned through all of this? I've learned that you need to give yourself the time and space to process things because if you don't, then they will come up at some point later in life and that will be life-changing in itself. You know, it had very detrimental effect on my relationship. And, you know, just on my, on my mental health in general, because I didn't understand what was going on. It was difficult. 
you know, because my mother's dying was very much a trauma too. Both of those traumas I never dealt with. And they came back and said, we're here, you need to deal. So, Because I sort of think that we all go through the world ignoring all thoughts of really painful, difficult things, that we have this sort of almost Harry Potter invisible cloak against <laughs> badness because we're yeah. good people, so nothing bad is going to happen to us. Yeah. And trauma pulls off this magical coat and we suddenly realise quite how dangerous the world is and that mm. can very easily be overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. How do you cope? Because, you know, if anybody knows there's not a magic coat protecting us because we're good, which is something we all of us desperately want to believe, you know, I mean, you know that that magic coat does not exist. So how do you live without it? Look, I'm a realist. So for me, it's around acknowledging the effect of those experiences on my life and, and learning from those can you hear my cat? I can. It's fine. <laughs> it's nice to hear some normal noises going He's on around. He's having a tantrum. <laughs> hopefully not trauma. No, hopefully not. Oh, dear. Yes, I think it's about being realistic. It's about understanding what your body can do, what your mind can do, and giving yourself the space and time. I think we live in a world where we don't often stop to do the self-care things and I know I'm really guilty of that you know just push through just keep going you just keep working just keep doing all of these things and when I got my diagnosis I actually was made redundant from my job at that time and I, I took some time out from the world and really focused on myself with therapy and doing the things that I needed to do to process and deal with that and to build up my toolkit and to build up my resilience again because I felt like I really sort of bottomed out with all of that sort of stuff. And you have started to or about to start studying psychedelic therapy. Yes. This is something that can be useful for people who've had trauma. Now, by psychedelic, I assume you're talking about LSD or mushrooms. Is this? Yes. So psychedelics at the moment covers LSD, psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, and MDMA is actually classified as a psychedelic as well. So they've discovered over the last two or three years with an organisation called MAPS and Imperial College in London, they've been running trials using these substances for people with PTSD and, and trauma and the results have been phenomenal. So what was your experience? It's very hard to therapy yourself. I have used some of these substances in, in the past and I definitely find that they help. But you need to take the substances and do the therapy at the same time. I would like to do this myself, but I'm going to learn how to do it for other people. You know, the integration work, I think, is the most important work. And they're actually expanding now and doing a lot of research into addiction as well. And addiction has its roots in trauma. Addiction and trauma go hand in hand. Oh, they? yeah, they absolutely do. Because when you've experienced trauma and your nervous system is dysregulated and you feel uncomfortable, often people's way of dealing with that is to self-medicate, whether that's through drugs or alcohol or gambling or shopping, whatever that might be, just to take their mind off the fact that they're not feeling right within themselves. You know, addiction and trauma are very much bedfellows. And why do you think that psychedelics might help trauma or what's the thinking behind how they help? 
for LSD and psilocybin, it's around switching off those parts of the brain that we have, I guess, to protect ourselves and you know, then able to process a lot of the stuff a lot easier. And MDMA especially, it shuts down the fear part of your brain and you're able to access those traumatic memories and work through them without the fear aspect. And that's a really powerful thing for people. And if you've seen some of the studies with MDMA and PTSD or addiction, the success rates have been quite outstanding. But what I seem to be hearing from you is that it's the integration, the talking about mm. it and processing it yeah. rather than just having a wild old time yeah. that is, <laughs> is the important part of yeah. it. I think it's very different when you're taking these substances in a clinical setting and that you have two therapists present who will guide you through the trip, who will be able to, you know, discuss things as they come up and, and help you deal with things. And then you have follow-up integrative sessions after that to help you then integrate all of those learnings into life. That's the really powerful thing. And is this all legal within the Australian system? It's getting there. So in America, it's had breakthrough FDA approval, which very rarely any drugs get. Australia is a little bit further behind. We do have the capacity for some psychiatrists to prescribe these medicines, but they're pushing to have it opened up more so that we can run these trials ourselves, which is exciting. So that's where I hope to come in. Because I think from memory, with the MDMA trials that they did, they needed 100 therapists just to run those trials. Because when you think about it, you've got two therapists doing an eight-hour session with a client plus follow-up work. So you need a lot of therapists on board. Now, we've been talking about trauma and mm -hmm. two big questions. Is there anything about trauma that we haven't covered that we need to add to this? There's probably a lot because trauma is very complex. It also depends on when you experience the trauma in your life as to how it's going to affect you. I think that it's really important to realise that trauma is not something you can read 10 signs on the internet and feel that you've got it. So if people have been listening, and this is my second important question, they've been sitting here and they've been sort of thinking, Although my story is very different from Fenella's, I'm recognising bits and pieces. Where do they go from listening to this podcast? You know, always the first stop is to go and speak to your GP. See if you can get a referral to, you know, a psychologist or a therapist that specialises in trauma and have a conversation around what's happened, you know, how you might think that that's what is going on for you because it's important to have those conversations and to not deal with it yourself. Because you sort of need help from outside to join the dots, so yeah. to speak. Even I did. I'm a trauma therapist and it still took <laughs> me going to my own therapy and to have someone join the dots for me and say, hey, this is what's going on for you. And I couldn't recommend strongly enough the body keeps the score because yeah. I think that is really helpful. This is the work of somebody who is one of the pioneers and you actually understand the history of all of this as well. Yeah. That is in the show notes. We'll also put to the book How to Change Your Mind, which is about the history of psychedelic research and the uh, journalist author has actually tried various of these things and gives you a very good overview of the whole topic. 
So we're going to now start to tie this back into the meaningful life. We're going to have a letter in just a second that's been written in by one of the people who support this project. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you become a supporter and join our supporters club here, you get all sorts of added benefits, one of which is that you can write in with letters. At the higher level, there's also a chance to ask me anything, which is a monthly event that will be starting soon, where if you're on the higher levels of supporting this podcast, you will be able to uh, join me in a, a Zoom call where we will talk about anything that you would like to talk about. So as I say, it's called Ask Me Anything. Whether I can answer the question is another matter, <laughs> but I can probably find some resources where we will be able to move forward with it. So this is the letter that's come in. My mother has multiple health issues, and although not one of them is particularly serious, together they build up to something major. Throw in COVID and her age, and I have to get my head around the fact she's not going to be around for much longer. I'm aware that I'm skirting around the word I should be using, but I can't write the D word. My father passed away a couple of years ago, who I love very much. Looking back, I coped quite well, better than I thought I would. But I had my mum to look after me, and we all pulled together. Somewhere inside, it feels like when mum is gone, I will fall apart. I know this is going to sound weird, but I'm going to lose the old family home, all the familiar objects, and the memories. There will be nobody to ask, where do we go on holiday that year? What was the name of the woman who ran the paper shop and why did you send me to that school? I sort of think I've asked everything, but there will always be something else. Writing this letter, I can feel the panic rising. I want to live the meaningful life, but it doesn't feel meaningful without my mum. So a very heartfelt letter, Fenella. Yes. What were your thoughts reading it? They said that it sounds weird, but I didn't think it sounded weird at all because I think I've had, you know, all of these things come up for me since my mum died. You know, unfortunately, our parents will die at some point, and I certainly struggle, not daily, but regularly with things, you know, I think, oh, if only I could ask my mum. I think the positives are that you actually still have your mum and that you can really, if you want to, create all sorts of legacies if you're both open to that sort of thing. My mum's mum, so my nana is still alive and she's 93, and my sister and I sat with her over the last few years and basically wrote a biography of her life and we put it down on paper because, you know, we recognise that once she's gone, we don't have that information and, and we can't speak to her. And we learnt so much about her life that we just didn't know about. And there's a lot of ways if you don't want to write it down, you can... You could interview them. Yeah, you could interview them. It can be spoken Do word. Do we still have tape recorders? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know, you can do digital documents and you can put photos. So there's heaps of ways that you can sort of memorialise people when they're still alive. And I think that's a really powerful thing to do. There's also other things like death cafes. Tell me about death cafes. Death cafes are where people come together to talk about death and dying and it might just be people who have an interest in it. It might be people who want to become educated around what happens around death. It's very living to be talking about death. 
I've never been to a death cafe, but if they serve good cake, you know, I'm up for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Cake and a good cup of tea. And, you know, there's people there who are trained. And so you can ask them questions around the end of life process and, and you know, get ideas around what you might like to do. You know, other things that I would recommend are having an end of life plan. And that's not just for people who are old. That's for everyone, for all of us. You know, I have a document where I've outlined my wishes for what I want around the end of my life when that happens, you know, what I want my funeral to look like, music that I want played, all of those sorts of things. I think that's a really powerful thing. It does feel really weird to do it. The first couple of times I became quite emotional sort of thinking about it. But then I thought, no, this is kind of a gift to the people that I might be leaving behind and it takes a bit of that burden off them. You know, I know for myself, when my own mother died, my sister and I organised her funeral and there's a lot of decisions that you need to make. If you've even got a little bit of information around what the person might have preferred and liked, then that just takes a little bit of that guesswork away and that sort of pressure. The other thing that I would recommend is ensuring that wills are in order, as well as things like advanced care directives, powers of attorney, you know, the person might not be able to make decisions for themselves, then you can make those decisions on their behalf. It's a very caring thing to do for someone and those conversations can be really difficult. But again, I think they're really important and you'd be surprised how many people would actually like to speak about these things. I did six months in palliative care when I first started counselling and the amount of people who actually wanted to discuss what was going to happen to them and how they were feeling was amazing because often their families just wouldn't or couldn't have those conversations with them. So you know, if you find that you're really struggling with those existential worries, which are really normal, go and get therapy and talk to someone about it because it's absolutely normal. We all feel some sort of dread around and panic around these things from time to time. And often it can be really nice to talk to someone about it. And give yourself plenty of time to process all mm. of this. For two reasons. Number one, this might be pointing in the direction of other stuff that you actually don't want to look at, but yeah. needs to be looked at. Yeah. And secondly, it can be a real turning point in your life. So, yeah. you know, listening to Fenella, it actually got her away from something that wasn't meaningful to something that was meaningful. Yeah, so right. it was a real turning point in her life. You know, the signpost had been pointing one way and now it's going to point another way. It could be that this is an invitation to think deeper and bigger about your life. And deepen and strengthen those connections with people. So you will deepen your connection with your mother and the fact that you've gone deeper with her will help you to go deeper with other people in the future. So I think this is the moment where we need to go deeper and ask from all of this, how has it affected the way that you look at the meaning of life and what makes your life meaningful? I think I used to subscribe to the very popular belief that you had to be busy all the time and you had to have everything sorted out in your life and you had to know where you were going and what you wanted and what it looked like. And now I kind of just go with the flow more and I'm open to new directions and I'm open to new ideas. I'm also all about doing what feels right for me. 
and all the self-care. You know, I'm not talking about day spas and all those expensive things. I'm, I'm just talking about really little simple things that you can do for yourself when you know that you're not feeling great. What do you do? I've actually gotten into gaming. I've been playing World of Warcraft, which I love because it's something that I can do and I really enjoy and it, and it takes me away from everything else. Like, you know, my, my job can be very heavy at times and trying to keep my life as uncomplicated as possible because for a long time, things for me have been difficult. You know, now I'm trying to simplify things and do what I like and love. So what makes your life meaningful? The feeling of doing things that make me content because I think happiness is a bit of a pie-in-the-sky thing to want. It comes in small bits and bobs. So it's about being content with where I am now and knowing that that could change at any point, but being okay with that. So thank you very much for sharing with us on the, the Meaningful Life. It's been extraordinary. I think we're all going to need some time to process this. <laughs> If you are part of our supporters circle, the conversation doesn't end here because I'm going to ask Fenella three things she knows to be true, and we're going to process a little bit what we've been talking about here. At this point, I'd like to say thank you very much, Fenella. Thank you for being my witness on The Meaningful Life. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.